Hello, and welcome to the podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat Risk Study in Ottawa, Canada. And I'm recording this on the 7th of April, 2020. And I'm really very pleased today to have with me Michael Petru, who is a visiting fellow in the Global International Studies Program at Carleton University here in Ottawa. And more importantly, he's the author of a book that I relied on quite a bit some years ago. So to give you a bit of backdrop, in 2015, 2016, I was working on my second book on foreign fighters to do with terrorism groups like Islamic State. Islamic State. And, I came, and I came across a really, a really interesting, interesting book called Renegades, uh, Canadians in the Spanish Civil War by Michael Petru. And Michael is now joining me on this podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you, Phil, for having me. So when you wrote Renegades, that was way back in 2008. Uh, as I say, it's a fascinating book on you know, why Canadians decided that going to fight in the Spanish Civil War from 1936 to 1939 was a good idea. So what did you learn about the rationales, the reasons, the the justification given by Canadians back in the, well, I guess the tail end of the Depression, why they left their, their homes and farmlands in Canada to go fight for the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War? Yeah, I mean, none of the Canadians had a direct connection to Spain, per se. They weren't Spanish. I think one out of 1,500 might have... Uh, been ethnically or had family ties to Spain. But so there was no obvious connection to, to joining this fight the way some, you know, other people have returned to their ancestral homes to take up conflicts there. But the Canadians saw what was happening in Spain as part of this much larger global conflict between the left and the right that included even their own struggles in Canada during the Great Depression. So although it was no, I mean, Franco was not responsible for the, you know, the collapse of wheat on the prairies, they believed that the world was fragmenting between these two camps. And a lot of them were immigrants, about three quarters, and many of them have been caught up in some of these left-right conflicts that had erupted after the end of the First World War in Europe. Um, so they saw Spain as an extension of maybe the Finnish Civil War, for example, or even as uh, strange as it might sound, even the Irish Civil War. They saw Spain was this screen in which they projected all these other uh, desires and, 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 and resentments and, and, and hopes. Um, so although it was a very localized conflict and had very, um, you know, its roots were in, in the Spanish earth, it was seen as this much larger symbolic clash that, uh, that drew in even, you know, people in, in Vancouver and uh, in Madison Hat. You made the point about Finnish Canadians, and I'm pretty sure that most Canadians did know we had a Finnish Canadian population. But when I first visited the Spanish War Memorial, which is just on the Ottawa River, just actually down from you know, Parliament Hill, not very far, you're amazed when you look at the names. And they come across as a lot of Finnish names, a lot of Eastern European names. And as you said, people that didn't have any natural link or uh, homeland in Spain. So aside from this notion that they, they, they projected, as you use the words, this sort of screen, the Spanish Civil War, what were they trying to achieve by volunteering to go fight in Spain in the 1930s? Well, you mentioned the, the memorial. And I mean, it's, it's a fascinating one. Um, and I don't think it would have been possible to erect it at any earlier than it was. It was put up in in 2001. I, like, coincidentally, I was, uh, I was in Afghanistan at the time. And uh, so I think a lot of the publicity was kind of overlooked by what was happening elsewhere in the world. And wasn't it Adrian, all... Adrian Clarkson? The, the, Adrian the, Clarkson, the again, general. amazing. <laughs> yeah, like that never would have happened because throughout so much of the Cold War, uh, you know, the Canadian volunteers and other volunteers in Spain were seen as, as you know, Stalinist dupes. Um, 
So, you know, they never would have. And this this was interesting. That kind of colored the way that they were portrayed. For example, books that were written during the Cold War tended to downplay their communism when, in fact, I mean, the vast majority of them were communists. Not very good communists, mind you. And that's another fascinating thing I found in my research is even though most of them were immigrants, they'd only been in Canada for, you know, 10 or 15 years, they'd already adopted this very... Canadian irreverence, uh, which frustrated to no end their commanders and political bosses from other countries. When you're reading the uh, when you're reading the reports, and the Canadians will say, you know, so and so is a very good soldier. He's very brave, but he, he's politically undeveloped, or he has anarchist tendencies, which was a dangerous thing for communists. Um, and they blamed the uh, you know the Canadian their situation in the Great Depression. A lot of these guys had been. Uh, trekking back and forth across the country on the roofs of railway cars, they had been involved in these lumber, uh, lumber camps. They were kind of inheriting a little bit of the North American Wobblies tradition. So they were communists on paper, but they were they had this this certain you know independent streak, which you even see reflected among uh, you know Canadians in the Second World War. They didn't defer to authority um, the way their comrades from say Europe or even the United States did. So they had their even though they were immigrants, they had their own uh, unique identity. Um, now, in terms of where they were coming from, you're right. I mean, a lot of a lot of Finns, um, from Northern Ontario uh, lumberjacks. You have sort of certain clusters of uh, of, uh, of volunteers. There was a lot from Vancouver because that's where a lot of the uh, you know the relief camp workers and a lot of the kind of leftist activism was happening. Um, large contingent of um, Hungarians, a lot of Ukrainians from the prairies. A lot of Finns from Northern Ontario, a lot of Irish and Scots and British. I think that was more reflective of just Canadian immigration patterns. Very few uh, French Quebecois, um, some French Canadians from you know that had, had left Quebec. But uh, the influence of the Catholic Church was was generally pro uh, pro fascism at the time. Um, a disproportionate number of Jewish Canadians. You had some clusters from uh, from Montreal, Montreal and elsewhere. Not as many, uh, you know, Jews as say were volunteers from from the United States, but still more than a, a disproportionate, more than there was their share of the population, and so they all, again, they all, I mean, they had different reasons. Like some of them, the, the, I remember one Finnish volunteer. He said, "Look, like I, I went to avenge my sister who was killed by Finnish whites in the Civil War." Well, of course, that had nothing to do with the Civil War. Spain didn't, um, but just when you look at their their demographics and you see these, you know, these huge clusters. It's not a coincidence that you had the Finns because there was they'd been radicalized by the civil war in Finland. A lot of them were communists. Ukrainians, same thing. This, this, uh, you know, they're all shaken by the, uh, you know, the uprisings. Uh, some of these attempts at Soviet uprisings, communist uprisings after the First World War. Some had more sort of independent, independent, uh, uh, you know, leanings. They believe that the uh, you have people saying, oh, you know, the liberation. Of um, uh, the liberation of, of Spain is is very much like the you know the independence that we're seeking, uh, say for Ukrainians who were in areas occupied by uh, by Poland at the time. So you know you have a lot of Ukrainians from areas that were under uh, Polish occupation. They saw that sort of a sort of uh, you know independence and nationalism even reflected in Spain. Again, a lot of this you know doesn't isn't seems odd you know because the dynamics in Spain were very different. But it was just a very fluid cause. I mean, the Irish, for example, you know, you have all these, you know, Irish Canadians. Most of them were veterans of the IRA. 
again, like not an obvious connection, but sort of the idea of, you know, Spanish freedom and Irish freedom for some of these volunteers, you know, there was a logical or a tangible or, you know, at least an emotional and heartfelt connection between these different causes. And finally, look, I mean, all of them were suffering under the Great Depression in Canada, you know, so they, they, they thought that, you know, the, the same tools or the same, the same system that was keeping them down and keeping them starving and, you know, living in these relief camps for, for, for 20 cents a day, you know, that same, you know, capitalism uh, that they, you know, they, they, they felt it. They felt its oppression uh, in Canada was the same thing that the Spanish uh, workers and, uh, and peasants were facing, uh, facing in Europe. So it was a malleable cause. And I suppose that the fact that they called themselves the Mac Paps, the Mackenzie Papineau Brigades, named after William Lyon Mackenzie and Louis Joseph Papineau, who were two 19th century, I guess, revolutionaries in Canada, both in what was then Upper and Lower Canada, Ontario and Quebec. So did they call themselves that because they really did see themselves as, as the, the vanguards of a, of a quasi-revolutionary movement that was there to, to fight evil and establish the, the forces of good in Spain? Well, I think the map maps, that's an interesting, I think that was an interesting decision. I think that was very much, uh, you know, a public relations decision. Um, they wanted, because a lot of them were, you know, a lot of them were foreign born, right? And when you read the RCMP reports, for example, on these guys, you know, they're very much dismissed as, you know, disloyal, you know, frankly, meaning, you know, not British, um, you know, Eastern Europeans, you know, they're foreigners, right? I mean, this is a time when, a lot of uh, uh, you know immigrants from Eastern Europe and the Balkans and elsewhere, um, who were deemed uh, you know who got involved in the Communist Party, you know they risked deportation. They were just they were seen as as outside the Canadian mainstream. So by picking you know a French and an English uh, historical figures, revolutionary figures. I mean yes, you're right. The revolutionary element was was, was there, but these were also uh, you know Canadian de souche, I suppose. You know these were. Uh, you know, uh, old stock Canadian, you know, revolutionary heroes, you know, the American battalions were, you know, named after George Washington and, um, Lincoln, uh, Lincoln. Yeah. So, you know, these, this, this is very, this is a very thought out decision that they say, you know, look, we're not, we're not foreign, you know, we are, we're fighting your cause. We are, we are Canadian. And that's that, it was a, I mean, it was a public relations decision as much as anything else. Now, you, you mentioned briefly the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So, of course, a lot of these guys, uh, they fought in Spain, and then eventually they, the war ended. Of course, Franco's forces did, did win, ushering in, what, almost four decades of, of dictatorship in Spain. So a lot of these guys end up coming home back to Canada, and they didn't actually get a hero's welcome, as, as Canadian soldiers did in, you know, maybe 1918, and more importantly, perhaps 1945 in World War II. So what was the RCMP, and by extension, the Canadian government's view of these guys who had fought what they what what they said was the good fight. The government was rather neutral. I don't think the government had a position on the Spanish Civil War. Correct me if I'm wrong. So, what did the RCMP and, and the sort of greater public safety, national security apparatus think of these guys when they returned, beginning in 1939? The RCMP was very hostile, and they had prepared a case to prosecute the recruiters and even prosecute those who who went overseas. They'd gathered intelligence and they were ready to go. And ultimately, uh, around early 1938, they realized that. Uh, uh, volunteers were no longer going over, and and they, they there was some discussion, I, I believe, with the government uh, that this would, although it wasn't a you know it wasn't a you know a uniformly popular cause, 
the feeling was that they're no longer heading over to Spain. And if we prosecute some of the return re- returnees, it'll be, you know, it'll be bad public relations. It'll, it'll, uh, you know, Canadians will, will not be happy about it. So ultimately the decision was made not to prosecute. And the, Can- the RCMP was quite uh, bitter about this. Uh, they viewed these guys as, um, again, foreigners, disloyal foreigners. Um, and they continued to surveil them. I believe the most recent report I was able to find was either 1980 or 1984. 1980? Um, so, if I'm a war that is in 19... That's a hell of a long it's file. It's ridiculous. <laughs> you have... Um, there's this one RCMP report. I'm quoting by memory, so I might get a word or two wrong. But, um, you know, they're they're surveilling these guys who are just getting together to have, you know, drink beers. And uh, very for, in very formal language, it was, you know, they say things like this. This doesn't appear to be a political gathering. It's more of a social get together <laughs> with uh, alcohol in attendance. You know? <laughs> and, um, you know, and then, you know, thank oh, thank God, you know, relief. Um, they, they no longer appear to be communists. They're following, you know, the NDP philosophy. And I thought, oh, good God, does the queen know? You know? <laughs> um so they, they got it wrong. I mean, you're asking people now. To be fair, um, like the Soviets, yes, in the 1930s, absolutely, the Soviets. It was the communists who were controlling a lot of the volunteers, and the communists wanted uh, to use these guys, you know, after the war for their revolutionary activities. I mean, absolutely. This is the time of the Red Scare, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and the Soviets, you know, they, you know, they were judging people not on whether they were good soldiers, but whether they were good communists. A lot of them. Um, you know, and I know I spoke with an old, old veteran, um, who said that he was approached by, uh, some sort of Soviet agent in Spain about doing, uh, work, uh, you know, for the party, uh, uh, some sort of secret work, uh, you know, after the war, he, he said he turned it, turned it down. Um, so, you know, and, and there were some American, uh, veterans of Spain who did spy for the Soviets. Uh, no Canadians did. So again, to be fair to the RCMP, the the Soviets wanted to use these. They had other other uh, ideas for what these volunteers might be might be doing after the war, but the RCMP I think didn't understand what motivated the Canadians. They thought these Canadian volunteers were Soviet dupes. They weren't. As I said, when you read the reports from the commissars in Spain, they were endlessly upset that the Canadians were not good communists. They were anarchists. They were Trotskyists. They were irreverent. You know, there's a uh, I remember a, a, a joke I read, uh, you know, the, I, I, uh, allegedly uh, a commissar, so this is sort of political boss in Spain, asks a Canadian how the coffee is. And he says, well, it depends, uh, comrade, comrade, commandante. Uh, if I'm politically developed, it's very good. Uh, otherwise, it tastes like horse piss. Right? <laughs> so so this, this was the, these are who the Canadians were. They were not, they were not, you know, Ottomans. Um, and, uh, you know, they came back and, uh, you know, there were a few, and uh, to be fair, there were a few, you know, hardcore communists. There was, uh, uh at least one who, uh, uh, worked for the Soviet inf- infiltrated or controlled the uh, secret police in Spain, but they did not want to come back to Canada and, uh, you know, launch a revolution here. Uh, and the RCMP never really understood that. They never really understood their, uh, their motivations, so their surveillance reports were, you know, way out in left field. Uh, at one point, they, you know, they had they got a hold of some, you know, veterans organization, you know, mailing, you know, pamphlet talking about supporting Republicans in Spain. You know, I forget exactly if it was with money or food packets or something. And they somehow managed to suggest that this indicated that the uh, the veterans of Spain 
know, we're planning on, uh, you know, reforming a battalion to go back to Spain and fight again. So they, they, they really, uh, they misunderstood and they, they grossly exaggerated the threat, um, that the Canadian volunteers, uh, posed to, um, uh, the Canadian state and, and just the, the public order here. Um, and I mean, we can get into why and I'd be speculating, but I mean, if, again, I think at the time, you know, a lot of the, you know, the RCMP was, it was dominated by, you know, Anglo Irish. Um, it wasn't, there weren't a lot of people that were, you know, part of the communities that were, they're going to Spain, you know, these Eastern Europeans and stuff. So I think they just, they just they, they they misunderstood what what these guys were about. You mentioned that they initially had thought about the possibility of charging these guys once they returned. I'm curious if your research found out what would they have charged them with because if memory serves me correctly, the Canadian <laughs> Parliament did pass the Foreign Enlistments Act sometime around, yeah. around that, making it illegal to join a an army or and to participate in a war to which Canada was not a party. Was that was, was that the plan originally? Is to, is was to charge them under this act? I believe so. Yes. Now, again, I'm not a, I'm not a legal historian, so I'm on a little bit of shaky ground here. But if I understand correctly, the Foreign Enlistment Act, Canada inherited that, or that was still in the law books um, uh, before the war began. And I believe in 1937 it was made applicable to Spain. Um, again, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a legal historian, but my understanding is yes, it was a Foreign Enlistment Act that would have been used to uh, to prosecute these guys. Now, of course, the reason why we're having this conversation, Michael, aside from the fact that it's fascinating, and I, and I really, I, your book was fascinating, Renegades, I, 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 and I'll put a I'll link to it in, when I publish this podcast. But the thing that, that you know, 2020, in 2020, in the last couple of years, the thing that a lot of Canadians, and by, and by extension, a lot of people in the Western world are worried about, is a different wave of foreign fighters. And that, of course, is are the number of Westerners, Canadians, Americans, Western Europeans, etc., that went to join Islamic State beginning in 2012, 2013, until the dissolution of the Islamic State in you know last year. And of course, there's been a lot of ink spilled, a lot of analysis, and a lot of, uh, I would say, uh, grandstanding and, and theorizing about the threat that these guys pose. Because you know some, some went to fight for ISIS, some died, uh, some yeah. are, in, are incarcerated either by the Kurds, the Syrians, or the Iraqis, and, and some have returned, and there are some that want to return. So if you can extrapolate from what you learned about the Spanish Civil War and the Canadian government's absolute almost sense of panic in the national security realm with respect to returning Spanish Civil War veterans. Can you make a link to sort of the atmosphere now in Canada and by extension other Western countries on returning ISIS fighters or is this a completely different ball of wax? Well, I mean, it's look, I mean, they're 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 different, uh, you know, they're different folks, I suppose, in terms of their motivations and their and, and their end goals. Um Look, I and, I and I don't want to downplay the um, I don't want to downplay the security threat that returnees from ISIS uh, pose. But I mean, my I have a clear eyed understanding of what motivated the Canadians and, and the threat that they posed. And they came back from Spain, you know, with a benefit of, you know, 80 plus years of hindsight. You know, we don't have that uh, now. Um so I can say that, you know, the RCMP didn't understand what motivated the Canadians in Spain. And this caused them to grossly uh, inflate the threat that these guys posed when they returned. Um, I can only assume that or I can only hope um, uh, that intelligence uh, is much better uh, today uh, regarding the motivations uh, and the threat posed by uh, returnees from ISIS. And um, I mean, I think they are uh, personally, I think they are a. Uh, uh, a legitimate security threat, but again, I don't, I don't have that 
I don't have that expertise. So, I mean, I, I, I think it was, uh, a, a pan- 1939, there was a, a panic, you know, built on misperceptions and a lack of information. Um, my belief or my understanding, uh, of, of ISIS and, and some of its adherents are that they're, Whereas what, mar- what, what motivated um, a lot of the Canadians in Spain in the 1930s was, uh, in, I think, legitimate injustice. Some of them were revolutionary. Um, some of them simply wanted a, a, a better deal uh, in, in a situation in Canada in which they were legitimately suffering. I mean, the Great Depression was terrible. Uh, I think the motivations of um, ISIS adherents are, are much more... Uh, revolutionary and even in, when, when you read as a, as Phil I know of course you you have and you know this far better than than I do um, it's not just revolutionary it's uh, uh, apocalyptic mm-hmm. a lot of the uh, you know the, the propaganda and narratives of, 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 of the Islamic State so I think the I think to the extent that the concern about Isis returnees is is greater uh, than it was uh, you know or is greater or is um, uh, substantial today, I, I, I tend to think that's probably uh, justified. I mean, that's not to say that there aren't, you know, ISIS uh, recruits that, um, you know, were misguided or, you know, made stupid decisions or, you know, you know, followed their husband. I mean, I, I can accept that. But the, you know, the ISIS ideology, which, uh, you know, these, you know, these young Canadians had exposure to, you know, through uh, very sophisticated online propaganda, um, you know, is dangerous, is revolutionary, is end times apocalyptic in its goals uh, and the means to by, by which they think these goals should be achieved. I mean, you know, we've both of us have read, you know, ISIS propaganda and immersed ourselves in their actions. And, um, you, know, this, you know, these are they, they endorse and celebrate, um, you know, murderous means of achieving apocalyptic ends. So I think that that is a legitimate uh, reason for uh, for concern when these guys come back to Canada. Not surprisingly, I do agree with you as someone who used to work for, for CSIS and looked at this whole issue of Canadians going to join groups. I, I suppose one of the underlying significant differences is that ISIS was in fact a terrorist group and there was never any real belief that those that volunteered to fight for the Republicans in Spain were, were terrorists per se. They may be misguided, they may have gone for a whole host of reasons, but as you said, we didn't have people who... Uh, knew or rather should have known that ISIS was in fact a, a heinous, violent terrorist group. And you're right, the, the, the motivations were, were right across the map. Some thought they were joining a utopian society. Uh, some people just, just like to kill and hurt people because that's what they're like. Others yeah. may, may have been duped by their boyfriends, husbands, whatever thing. So, But it is important, I think, to not to try to draw too many parallels between the situation 1939 with the returning uh, Mac Paps or whoever they were and those who are returning from ISIS Day. And I, and I do agree with you again that the vast majority of these people probably do not pose an immediate threat to public safety. The, the, the devil's in the details, so, and it's trying to figure out which one, right? If, if 100 yeah. people return, and if work by um, Thomas Hegkammer, the Norwegian scholar, is any indication, uh, one in nine returning foreign fighters ends up planning something, an act of terrorism in their homelands, the problem is figure out which which one, which one in nine kind of thing. So so looking forward, and I, I guess as a way to sort of wrap this up, what lessons, if any, could we have learned uh, by our approach? Now, mind you, you know, it was 80 years ago. So I'm, I'm really careful not to say that what we learned back then and in, in the intervening years is completely applicable to, to where we are in 2020. But if you were to be put up on the spot and say, 
how we could have done things better then and how that can apply to now, what would you say? Well, if I was going to be real, you know, pie in the sky, uh, uh, you know, looking back, I suppose what, what I would have, the big lesson for me is, you know, these, these volunteers should have been supported, you know, and that, and not, not in the sense, not that Canada can support, you know, an unofficial militia, but I do think, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a starry eyed romantic about, uh, about Spain. I mean, it was like all wars, it was an ugly one. And like all civil wars, it was particularly ugly. And I, you know, I'm, I'm well aware of the, you know, disreputable characters on, on both sides of the conflict. But I think ultimately, um, you know, these volunteers, uh, in 1936 and 37, uh, they recognize the, uh, the threat that fascism posed and resolve to do something about it. So in terms of, you know, if I could roll back the clock and, 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 and change history, uh, you know, I would wish that the, that the democracies had, had been similarly, uh, prescient about the, the threat of fascism and had resolved to confront it, uh, earlier than they did. Cause look, you know, I mean, a lot of, you know, the Canadians, these Canadians who fought in Spain, they were, let's not forget Adolf Hitler supported Franco. Absolutely. So these Canadians, they were, they were fighting Nazism, uh, you know, uh, two, three years before the democracies were finally roused and had to do the same. I mean, I'll always remember uh, George Orwell's, you know, uh, haunting and beautiful ending to um, uh, Homage to Catalonia. He talks about coming back. He's, of course, he's shot through the throat and he's caught right up in the ugliness of the anti-fascist side. Right. I mean, he, you know, his uh, he escapes not just a fascist, but he escapes, you know, the. Uh, Republicans or the communist dominated Republicans. He, he had been involved in this sort of fringe militia, uh, as, as was another Canadian who only died in the last uh, couple of years, actually. Um, he was with this, you know, uh, this anti-Stalinist, anti-fascist uh, poom, this militia in Spain. And so he, he escapes Spain and he is and he travels through France and he crosses the channel and then he says, and then it's England again. And he just describes this, you know, the rolling green hills and just the the sameness, you know, the, 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 the comfort of repetition in England. Uh, and he says, you know, and we'll never, we'll never be, I fear we won't be roused from this complacency until we're jerked out of it by the roar of bombs. And he was right. I mean, he recognized that fascism was coming, whether we wanted to appease it or not. And, and so did these, so did these Canadians. So if I could roll back the clock, you know, I wish the government had, had shared that that awareness. Now, I think what you really wanted to hear was being what, what to do about, <laughs> about the returning volunteers. Give me the solution, and, Michael. Give the solution to the Canadian government. <laughs> you know, look, uh, I mean, the lesson, you know, the lesson I think is uh, if you're going to have, if you're going to make a good judgment about the risks that these people you need you, know, you need good intelligence. You need assets who are from that community, which you know Canada certainly didn't have, uh, you know, in 1936 or 39. I mean, when you're reading the intelligence reports, there's a, I mean, it's humorous in 1980s as I talked about. You know, they're you know they're surveilling these social get-togethers. Um, in 1937, they're you know they had an agent kind of like uh, you know lurking in. Well, this isn't such a bad idea now that I think about it. But, you know, lurking in these drinking establishments, trying to overhear conversations that allegedly were happening in bathrooms. But um, they didn't have, um, you know, they didn't have agents on the inside. They had one alleged uh, 
informer. It it it, it suggested, but um, you know, these the, this planning and recruiting was was happening, um, you know, kind of outside uh, the awareness of the RCMP. Um, you know, I can only assume, um, you know, that Canada has, uh, you know, much better, um, uh, the Canadian security services have much better penetration, uh, you know, into, uh, uh, communities that are, uh, you know, that have been sending, uh, recruits to, uh, uh, to ISIS and other, uh, you know, and other jihadist organizations. Um, I think that's a lesson. I think, you know, you and I differ about whether they should be allowed to come back to Canada, which is another interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think both of us recognize the uh, uh, the threat that these guys, or most of us, believe that these people throw uh, uh, pose a threat. Um, you know, I I think we need to not we need to. I think we're obligated to bring them back as citizens, anyways. And I and, and I know you uh, you differ. Um, and that's I suppose that's another 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 not. Uh, it's an unsatis- unsatisfactory answer. I. Uh, no, I, I, I appreciate your thoughts on that. Yeah. I, I think, if nothing else, uh, you know, you point to the fact that uh, in many ways in the 1930s, we, 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 we slept walk our way into World War II, right? I mean, people yeah. didn't think Hitler was so bad. And people forget, I'll never be, forget being in the Prado in, in Madrid and seeing uh, Picasso's Guernica, this, this massive mural about the bombing of a town in, in the Basque country by, by you know, yeah. the Air Force of sort of Hitler and Franco and, and, and you know, the, the absolute tremendous... Uh, damage and, and and death toll and the fact this was basically a warm-up for for yeah. second world war and we, we kind of ignored it you, you know michael I, I, again i just i, I do want to say that uh, renegades is, is, is an absolutely fascinating book and, and i remember i and I, I found it serendipitously when i was doing my research for my book on western foreign fighters but it really helped me understand a whole era of, of history that i was only remotely familiar with um so in ending i mean is there what are you what are you working on now what 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 kind of Era of history. As a historian, is there something you're working on now you want to share with my listeners? Well, I yes. I mean, I I, I have to knock on wood or or, or hope that uh, I'm able to land this eventually. But I'm fascinated that I'm fascinated by the echoes that the Spanish Civil War had, and there's all kinds of them. You know, even we've been talking about jihadists. Uh, one of the uh, Pakistani ISI uh, intelligence uh, chiefs, who of course helped coordinate sending. Uh, uh, you know, international volunteers, uh, you know, to fight the Soviets uh, in Afghanistan. I remember he said, um, I remember reading that he said, you know, the communists had their international brigades and now we'll have ours. You know, so 50 years after the fact, he was you know, on the other in a completely incongruous part of the world. The Pakistani spy chief was was you know, holding up this example. And then just recently in the last week, uh, a Spanish Republican died. He uh, and he but he had been one of the Spanish Republicans that. Uh, liberated uh, Paris in 1944. A lot of the Republicans, you know, they they had to flee. They fl- they fled Spain uh, and they joined the Free French. Right? They they rolled into Paris with their their uh, armored personnel carriers with the names of Spanish towns on them. Right? And then others of them, you know, went to uh, went to South America and there was echoes there. Anyways, the ripple or the echo that I'm most interested in is during the Second World War. Um, the special operations executive. Mm-hmm. This was a British yeah, outfit that yeah. parachuted, it parachuted folks behind German lines uh, uh, to liaise with resistance groups in, in occupied Europe and coordinate arms drops and whatnot. So Yugoslavia was this uh, you know vast mountainous country where there were two active resistance groups, and the British couldn't figure out what was going on and, or whom to support. So they ended up recruiting about twenty 
uh, Yugoslav Canadians, uh, and at least six of them were veterans of the Spanish Civil War. Wow. They wanted these guys who had combat experience, who had party ties, perhaps, because uh, one of these groups, Tito, was you know communist-led. Um, so they had this whole recruiting operation uh, in, in, in Canada and the United States, although things kind of went south in America, um, where they were partnering with uh, these veterans of Spain, again, communists mostly... Uh, uh, many of whom were, you know, had precarious immigration status, uh, and they recruited these guys, uh, took them to uh, to Egypt, uh, then they'd fly across the Mediterranean, and they dropped them into into Yugoslavia, and so that story just uh, it, it it absolutely fascinates me. These were veterans of Spain, um, or people in their network of these dissident radical uh, communist immigrants. Um, and sometimes the British were cooperating with the RCMP. Sometimes they were going behind their back because, again, the RCMP did not did not like these guys. So I've written um, uh, in the, the Journal of the Canadian Historical Association. Uh, I've written a chapter about the recruitment of these uh, of these Canadian veterans of Spain and their you know, and their colleagues. Uh, I really hope I can build on that research because it's uh, it's a fascinating story. They didn't leave a lot of records, unfortunately. Uh, I have these wonderful archival. Uh, documents and material uh, from the British, you know, where they'll, where they'll say, oh, you know, so-and-so is, uh, and is full of these, you know, class and, and ethnic stereotypes, you know, so-and-so is full, full of Slavic peasant cunning, you know, but might might be useful in a fight, you know. Um, so anyways, I'd love to be able to tell more of, of, of that story, and we'll we'll see where that goes. Well, I wish you the best of luck. And I must say that the first time I came across that memorial I referred to earlier on the Ottawa River, I was quite, I, I spent quite a bit of time there just looking at the names and looking at something that, as you said, was unthinkable back in the 1930s and 40s when these guys first came back. And now they're just seen as these little plucky little guys that did their best to try to, you know, save Spain from what ended up becoming a four decade iron hand iron fist rule by, by a dictator so michael listen i want to thank you very very much for joining me on the podcast we i think we could talk for days about this and and i certainly uh, i'm going to draw put a link to your book as well as the article in, in, in the journal you refer to so that my listeners can learn more about your research into uh the spanish civil war and, the, and why it actually has repercussions up to today so thanks for joining me thank you phil what a pleasure to talk with you so that's it for today's podcast. I'd love to hear what you think about my conversation with Michael Petru. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Borealis Saves, on LinkedIn or on Facebook. You can subscribe to all the content free of charge. Just go to www.borealisrisk.com, hit the subscribe button, provide your email, and you'll get a daily digest of this information free of charge to your inbox. I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, stay safe. <laughs>